Me? Well, listen to me read the word. Second Samuel 7, verses 1 to 11. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. <clears throat> but that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, Thus saith the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day that I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. Verse 7. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore... Thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I have something to say to you. Wouldn't you like to know the future, your future, the future of this church, the future of your family? There's so many things, I think, oftentimes that we wonder about. What, it's, what is it going to be like down the line? How long am I going to live? <clears throat> what am I going to be like at the end of my life? What is my health condition going to be? It would be great to know in advance what is ahead. You know, recently in the news, back about a month ago or so, uh, this was... Uh, Sports news in the baseball world. Uh, the Houston Astros employed a uh, way of getting an advantage over their opponent. As a matter of fact, it was so serious what they did that now the current manager, who was the current manager of the Boston Red Sox, was fired because of it. And that basically it was his idea to do this. But what happened was the Houston Astros a baseball, professional baseball team had put a camera in center field that was able to zoom in on the catcher. And as you know, if you know baseball at all, the catcher gets down in the squatting position and he puts different numbers down between his legs for the pitcher particularly so that they're in harmony of what he's going to pitch and what he's going to catch. But it's even a better advantage for the hitter. And if you played baseball at all, like I have, you're, you're always guessing. Is he going to throw me a curve? Is he going to throw me a fastball? Is he going to throw me a changeup or whatever? Well, anyway, the camera picks up the signals, right? These, this camera now is shown in the dugout. The dugout knows now what the pitch is going to be, and the coach or whoever is managing this is able to signal the batter. This is within seconds, two seconds. 
what they would do, they would hit the trash can once if it was a fastball, twice if it was a curve, or whatever. They had, they, this was the way they communicated to the batter as he's up there anticipating the pitch. He gets the signal. He, he knows within half of a second this is going to be a fastball, and it did make a difference. It did make a difference. Well, so knowing the future can be a real blessing. But we don't have that luxury, do we? God has prevented us from knowing the future. In Ecclesiastes 3 and 11, it says, God has placed ignorance in the human heart so that people cannot discover what God has ordained from the beginning to the end of their lives. Ecclesiastes 3 in verse 11. You know, Israel had a wonderful tool that they could use from time to time. It was called the Urim and the Thummim. It was an, a, a, an, uh, an article that was placed inside of the, the breastplate of the high priest that could be sort of tapped into to be able to know the mind of God. There was also occasions where lots were cast and the Lord would reveal His mind by the way the lot would come out. Remember, Saul had that dilemma when God wasn't, not, wasn't speaking to him by dreams or by prophets or by the Urim or, or the Thummim, so he was a bit in a quandary. How does that relate to what we're talking about this morning as we have read Second Samuel chapter 7? Well, David has some aspirations. David, at this point, as we said last week, has vanished, uh, yes, he has vanquished, rather, the Philistines. He has captured the stronghold of Jerusalem. He has already brought the ark of God back into the city of David. He was on a high, you could say. He had no enemies. He had national support. No rivals. There was safety. And he had an undisputed reign. What more could someone like David want? Verse 1 tells us the king lived in the house. In his house. And the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. He was definitely in a comfort zone. He had finally arrived at this point where he could kind of kick back and enjoy his life. But that wasn't David's mindset. The next verse says, The king said to Nathan, the king, that is David now is the undisputed king. He says to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. In other words, I've got this luxurious home that I'm dwelling in, and God, who is far greater than I, is living or dwelling in a tent. What tent was that? Called the tent of meeting. What we might know as the tabernacle. God had said later through Nathan that he had been living in a tent all along, even in the period of the judges when the tabernacle was set up at Shiloh and at Nob in places. God never complained about his dwelling place. But David has an interest in erecting something that would be worthy of the God of Israel. And we have to, so to speak, take our hat off to him. Give David some credit for this kind of energy and desire that he had. Now, he was a king. He could have made a, uh, a, a rash decision on his own. He didn't need to uh, confide in anybody. But he appeals to Nathan the prophet. He consults with him. And Nathan has a response back to him. 
Praise God, you know, David is commended for his zeal by Nathan. Nathan said to the king in verse 3, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Do all that is in your heart. What is in your heart? Where does your heart gravitate? The heart, of course, here would be referencing to our inner man. What directions do we go in? What are our interests? What draws us to certain things? What are we, you could say, what are we living for? What motivates us? What is our joy? I think we all have hobbies. We have recreations. We have pastimes. Some of them can be elevated to levels that that consumes us entirely. And that's all we want to talk about, think about, and that's all we want to live. And for those of us that are Christians, I think we need to examine ourselves that we don't elevate these kinds of things that I think God has given to us many things of this world for our enjoyment, but none of them to become displacements, substitutes, or even rivals to the Lord. He should be our supreme desire. And David was one that had this kind of zeal. But he consults with Nathan. Sometimes, you know, our hearts can be filled with desires, good ones even, possibly, and we don't consult anybody. We have to commend David for two things. What was in his heart? There's nothing wrong with that. This is a great desire he had. I want to build something for the Lord. I dwell in a beautiful house of cedar. I want to erect something that will be to the glory of God and worthy of the name of the Lord. Secondly, he consults with Nathan. Praise God for that. Uh, Do you have a Nathan in your life? Do you have someone that you... Look at as a confidant, as a mentor, somebody that you can tap into to maybe run something by them, to get their input so that you are able to think something through. The Bible says in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. There's an advantage to having someone you can consult with, having particularly a Nathan in your life. Hopefully, if you don't have one, you might think of who that could be that you could be maybe accountable to. Not like a clergyman to a layperson. That's not what I'm talking about. But someone who can be chummy with you. Somebody that can be friendly with you. Someone who's not afraid to tell you the truth about where maybe your heart is going. And hopefully you're sharing your heart and your friend, your confidant is willing to say, as the Bible says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Do you have a friend like that that you can consult with that will give you the truth of what they think? Now, granted, this person's not going to be a prophet with a capital P, and let's not elevate anybody to that level as if they are a pure oracle of God's. That's something we have to be mindful about. But on the other hand, we have to be careful to not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to, so that the decisions that we're making is something that is stemming from our own origins without any input from anyone else. That, that can be dangerous. 
Now, David here wants to build a house for God. Outstanding. No doubt about it. Uh, it tells us in 1 Kings 8, 17 and to 19, for instance, it says, Now, it was in the heart of David. This is Solomon speaking, by the way. It was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. There's a tribute that the son was paying to his father. goes on to say, But the Lord said to David, my father, Whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Now this is the key, verse 19. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son whom shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house. So what was in David's heart wasn't in God's heart. And sometimes we can be so proud of ourselves or think so highly of ourselves that we might think that what we think is what God thinks. What we want is what God wants. And you know, when we're zealous, that can sometimes be blinding. It's a great thing to be zealous. The Bible says be zealous of good works. Over and over again, it talks about zeal. The word zeal comes from the Greek word, which means to boil over. I wish more of us had more zeal. I wish I had more zeal for the things of God. If you were to rate your zeal on a scale of 1 to 10, where would it come to? What number would actually represent the level of your zeal? Zeal. David's commended by his son. It was in your heart to build a house. Hallelujah for that. It might have been possibly at this time in David's life, when he's contemplating this building, that maybe he wrote Psalm 23. And that's just a conjecture. But we had said last week that David, up to this point as we have been preaching on and going through 1 Samuel, David is constantly on the run. He's always fleeing from the enemies and Saul. He's joining hands with the Philistines to try to get safety. His life is very topsy-turvy. And then once his enemy Saul was put to death, and the Philistines were put to death, and he was able to vanquish Jerusalem, now he's in a state of liberty. Now he's able to think more clearly. There's not so much to occupy his mind. And it's possible that maybe it was at this time that he was able to write, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And notice what he goes on to say. I want you to notice these, these uh, verbs, these action verbs that he describes about himself. He, that is God, makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me. By the still waters. He restores my soul. He comforts me. He prepares a table before me. He anoints my head with oil. David is obviously in communion with the Lord. Praise God for that. Psalm 23 is a powerful psalm. And he says, You've anointed my head with oil and my cup runneth over. 
Well, this may have been the period in David's life where his cup was running over. Have you ever felt the Lord has blessed you so much that you can't contain it? I forget what psalm it is that it says, These things are too wonderful for me. We can't contain them. They just outflow from us. Out of their innermost part shall flow rivers of living water. He anointed my head with oil. My cup runs over. What does that mean? I think it means the joy, the enthusiasm, the excitement of belonging to the Lord and communing with Him and the effects that that produces in our lives should be such that it overflows the cup level and even flows elsewhere. How full is your cup? How full is it? Can we honestly read Psalm 23 and say, My cup runneth over. Now, I know we have peaks and valleys in our life. Everybody does. Every Christian does, for that matter. And when you can say we have good days and we have bad days. That's a given. I understand that. We should understand that, undoubtedly. But categorically, can we say that my cup runs over? I've got to ask myself, and you ask yourself, how full is my cup? The psalmist here is able to say it runs over. Can we say that about ourselves? Maybe this is one of the reasons why David is able to be classified as a man after God's own heart. Because his cup was overflowing with the enthusiasm of belonging to the Lord. But what's tricky here in this portion is that what's in David's heart doesn't come to fruition. He does run it by Nathan, and Nathan squashes. Well, first Nathan, and this is where we have to be careful of uh, being too quick in our reaction. And I know I've done that many times. People have sometimes shared something with me or asked for my opinion of what they're thinking or what they want to do. And it sounds so good on the surface that you almost, it's a no-brainer. You want to say, yeah, go ahead, do it. If that's what you want to do, go ahead and do it. Well, that's kind of how Nathan was with, with David. David was enthused about this idea that he had in his heart to build. He tells Nathan, and Nathan says to him, Go do that, all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Nathan was speaking out of turn here. He didn't have the mind of God at this point. He wasn't speaking prophetically. He was speaking you could say less than prophetically. He was speaking maybe more emotionally. It was appealing to David. It was something David would want to hear. And a lot of times we want to say something that people want to hear, right? Especially our, our friends. We want them to like us. We want to say things that will sort of solidify our relationship with them. Well, Nathan responds in that way. But, verse 4 says, that same night... The word of the Lord came to Nathan and reversed the whole thing. And praise God for the courage and for the steadfast faithfulness of Nathan, because the Lord says to him, 
Now you need to go to David and say, no, don't build me a house. I've never had a house built for me. I never required it from Samuel or any of the judges in the past. And I'm not asking for one right now. So tell David to halt on the ideas of building me a house. So Nathan faithfully goes to David. David could have said, are you kidding me? This is in my heart. That's that's the tricky part. That's where we've got to be mindful, careful. What's in your heart? One example, we have several examples of this. Here's one of them, Moses. It says, at the age of 40, it tells us this in Acts chapter 7, and it goes back to Exodus chapter 2. It says, when Moses saw the way that his brethren, that is his Hebrew family brothers, were treating one another... It says he had it in his heart to want to interrupt them and break them up and say to them, You are brethren. It's a good verse. You are brethren. Why are you fighting one another? Man, that verse just jumped off the pages to me last night or this morning. So, wow, that's a, that's a good SOS verse. <laughs> brethren, you are brethren. Why are you fighting? Do you have a fight with a fellow Christian? May that echo in our ears. Brethren, you are brethren. Why are you fighting? You know, in a family when there's sibling rivalry and there's contentions, they realize I had a, one brother and only brother, and we had many times when we, we had our bouts with each other, sometimes fisticuffs even, but we knew that we were brothers. And that made it superior to our quarreling. That sort of uh, superseded our, our bickerings with one another. But how much more in the family of God when we have the same blood connection with spiritual blood brothers and blood sisters with one another. So, brethren, how can you fight with one another? Your brothers... Your sisters, your family, you belong to the Lord, you belong to each other. Just a little word of exhortation there for all of us, I think. Well, anyway, it was in Mo, it says it came into Moses' heart to do that very thing, to intervene and try to, to, uh, pacify this disturbance that these brethren were having with one another. And, of course, the, the outcome was that they turn on him and they say, Who are you to speak to us? You were the one that, that killed one of the Egyptians. And all of a sudden, Moses said, Oh, boy. And he had to flee. It wasn't the right time for him to intervene in Israel's state right there to try to uh, redeem it, you could say, redeem them and, and, and bring them out of bondage. But the movement began in his heart. But the heart's not trustworthy. We have to be careful about overemphasizing or maximizing the feelings that are in our hearts. Because, not simply because it's deceitful and desperately wicked, we know that it is by nature, but it's just because of our being in the flesh, being human beings. And reminding you of Ecclesiastes 3.11 that I just read earlier, where it says that God... Uh, has been pleased to place ignorance in the human heart 
so that people cannot discover what God has ordained from the beginning to the end of their lives. What that basically is saying, that we cannot be sometimes 100% certain about doing something or other. And you might say, well, the Bible says that, you know, we, we walk by faith. The Bible says that the spiritual man understands all things. The Bible says we don't, we don't look at the things which are seen, but the things which are unseen. You know, we, we have definitely some spiritual senses that we have gained by becoming a Christian. And there's certain things that we know that we wouldn't know if we weren't saved. And the ignorance that blinded us from God when we were alienated from the life of God through the blindness that was in us has been changed, certainly. But let us not think that we are absolutely impeccable. And I have witnessed this, maybe a little in my own life and and, in others as well, who may feel so dogmatic about something because they have this feeling inside of them to do something or other, and they feel so confident. And I think a great example of this, too, is the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 20, verse 22, he says, I am bound in my spirit. Small s. You can look at your various translations, and there are some translations, probably the majority, that have a capital S. But I'm... I feel fairly confident to say that it's a small s. That Paul was bound in his human spirit. It was like David here at this point. It was in his heart to want to build a temple for the Lord. It was in Paul's heart to want to go to Jerusalem. He says, I am bound in my spirit, small s, to go to Jerusalem. The next chapter tells us that others told him in the Spirit, capital S, do not go to Jerusalem. A few verses later, Agabus takes this girdle and he, he demonstrates to Paul that the one who has it is going to have these, these ill treatments that are ahead for that person in Jerusalem. And that was obviously referencing Paul and Paul knew it. But Paul was adamant. He was determined to go. Now, am I going to say that Paul made a mistake or that Paul was out of communion with the Lord? He says, I'm bound in my spirit to go. After the disciples tried to persuade Paul to not go to Jerusalem, and he says, what mean you to weep and to break mine heart? I'm ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. What was their response? They said, The will of the Lord be done. And they left it at that. Paul, if that's your mindset, if you intend on going, the will of the Lord be done. And I do believe the will of the Lord would be done and was done. So though we may err and stumble, and we may want to fulfill something that's in our heart, God is going to somehow bring us through that. What we've got to be careful about is not to be so... Pig-headed, if I can use that word, and not be overly confident. And this can stem from when our cup runs over. That's why I'm titling this message, Beware When Your Cup Runs Over. David's cup at this point in his life was certainly overflowing. 
And he must have had a certainty that what he was going to do was going to be honored by God. And God was going to bring this to pass. But not so. Interestingly, the way the chapter, this portion that we read ends, he's asking or telling David, I want to build a house for the Lord. The last verse, 11, that we read at the very end says, the Lord declares to you, that is to David, that the Lord will make you a house. So David wants to build a house for God. And God says, I'm going to build a house for you. Totally reversed. David must have been scratching his head. And I'm tempted to touch 12 and following, but there's too much in it. We have to wait a week before we get how that would actually be fulfilled and how a house would be built that would be a house called a house of David. And now whet your appetite by saying in the book of Acts, we read about the, about the, about Christ being raised to the throne of David. Chapter 13, we have the sure mercies of David. In chapter 15, we have the building of the tabernacle of David. We'll talk more about that next week. So, let us be mindful of zeal. The Bible tells us about the Jews. They were, they had a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So zeal in in and of itself cannot be the deciding factor on whether something is to be done or not to be done. It's just because of the way we are. It's the way we are emotionally constructed. And I'm not trying in any way to to uh, dim your 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 visions or to squash your desires or to in any way impede your zeal. If anything. I would want you to be more motivated for the Lord. But I'm just saying there are certain things sometimes when we might feel real certain in our heart that this is what we ought to do. And, and we may do it at an emotional peak period when it ends up being a flaw and an error on our part of doing what we did. So there can be a danger sometimes when we are overzealous But in conclusion, I want to ask you again, do you have a Nathan in your life, a confidant, somebody who you can trust in? Let's not overemphasize then the hot, our hot feelings over our head facts. How do we come to conclusions sometimes on what we should do? Sometimes the heart has replaced the the head. And sometimes Christians want to just put their head to silence and let the heart beat loud enough to follow it. When I think there surely needs to be a balance, we can't just act cerebral, cerebrally all the time. The heart obviously has to be engaged. Emotion has to be engaged with the mind. But there are needs that we can employ ways that we can employ so that we do make right decisions in our life. That we are not allowing our emotions to drive us to a decision that could be fatal even sometimes. If you choose that you're going to leave the job, you got mad at your boss or you weren't treated fairly and it happened one too many times and now you've had it and you've, you, you panic and, and you've written your, your, your notice of departure or something of that sort. That's not how we ought to act. 
The Scripture says in Proverbs 22, verse 3, A prudent man foresees the evil and hides himself, but the fool rages and is confident. A wise man foresees the evil. Ecclesiastes says, A wise heart knoweth the time. Knows the time and the purpose and when to act. Do we act at the right time? Do we know the right time? You know, the Lord talks about how the children of this world are wiser than the children of light. And the example that He gives is that, that, that foolish steward who wasted the, the substance of his master and now he has to make up for it. And he sits down and thinks about how can I handle this? And he ends up writing to all his debtors and say, just give me half of it, give me half of it. And he ends up collecting a whole sum of money real quickly and he's commended for his wisdom. And Jesus says, no one goes to war that doesn't first sit down and count the cost to see whether or not, whether or not he has enough forces in his army to be able to defeat the enemy. Or no one builds a tower that doesn't first sit down and count the cost and say, do I have enough money to accomplish this? This is very practical stuff. Some people operate totally with the mind some people totally with a heart. Some in between. Some a little of each. I think we need that, that mixture of both. David is certainly complimented by his son Solomon years later, which I think was a message from the Lord as well. And Nathan too, his response is, do what's in your heart. It's a great thing to have our heart propelled to want to do things for the Lord. But at the same time, I think we need to sit down and count the cost. And then we may be able to settle the matter with a degree of assurance. A prudent man foresees the evil. Do you plan things out well? Do you, in an engineer-like fashion, maybe sometimes I tell people when they ask my opinion on whether they should do this or that and and I don't want to be the deciding factor for them, I'll say, brother or sister, just sit down and think about this. Weigh it out. Weigh the good. Weigh the bad. Compare the one against the other. And then, as analytically as you can, with a clear head and clear mind, without any prejudices, look at the facts and then give it up to God. And say, God, from what I know, from my vantage point, this is, this seems to be what is best. Lord, show me, confirm to me that this is what I ought to do. And I'm not gonna say to you, you know, wait, wait until you, you get a, a slaying in the Spirit from the Lord from heaven, but you just, obviously we need to make our decisions with God's involvement, and that involvement comes with communion and prayer. Sometimes we can miss the forest for the trees. Because our mind is so blurred by even maybe our heart that's going in so many various directions. This probably hopefully has some application to you in, of something in your life. There's something that you've got to decide. Maybe you're going to move somewhere or you're thinking of another job or you're contemplating, you know, should we get married or shouldn't we? Or should I try another church? Should I go here or whatever, whatever? These, these are big decisions. And decisions can determine the rest of your life. 
the bigger they are, the harder you could fall if you make a bigger decision, a wrong decision about one that's big. We have to be careful about that. David, I have no doubt that his heart was overflowing. His cup was overflowing. He loved the Lord. And people who love the Lord the most, if you will, don't necessarily have the mind of God all the time about all things. And David, I think, for us, exhibits an example of that, where he was, you could say, misled, or didn't have the right perspective of this. Hadn't really thought about the Lord's travel with Israel from Egypt to Canaan in the hundreds of years that had transpired. In all of those years, the Lord chose to dwell in a tent. And David, with all that was happening, he had vanquished the Philistines. Uh, his enemies were dead. He has come to Jerusalem and, and over, over conquered Jerusalem for himself. And he's brought the ark of God into now called the city of David. And he thought, I'm, I'm going I'm to keep riding this. This is, this is getting better and better. The only thing left is to build the house of God. But, you know, praise the Lord, we don't see David having a negative reaction to Nathan's saying, not like he does later, you are the man when it comes to the sin with Bathsheba. But he's pointing the finger at him and saying, brother, the Lord has said you're not the one to build a house for the Lord. And maybe you're not the one that God wants to do something that you think should get done. Don't worry, the Lord is in control. And I think David learns this lesson. He takes a backward seat. But you know, God allowed him, we don't get this in this text here, we'd have to go to Kings and Chronicles, see that David was allowed to provide the blueprint for the temple that Solomon used to construct it in that future time. So maybe what was in David's heart was somewhat honored by the Lord in that God did work all things together for good. David, what was in your heart? Like Nathan's first reaction was, do what's in your heart. The Lord says, no, this isn't the right time. The wise heart will know the proper time and procedure, for there is a proper time and procedure for every matter. Ecclesiastes 8, 5, and 6. This wasn't the time for David to build. He wasn't, and we'll read other passages that would say that David, because he was a man of blood, a man of war, and so on, was another inhibition for him to be the constructor of that temple. So in conclusion, once again, there's a danger sometimes of being overzealous. That we can allow our emotions to, emotions to drive us. Let's be sure that we have a Nathan in our life. Someone who's a mentor or a confidant that we can tap into for input, for running things by and getting some feedback on where we may be going or what we may be thinking. And let us try to plan things out, not entirely with our hearts, which can sometimes be, we know, and here's some examples that we heard about this morning, that can be misleading, but we can use our heads as well. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the example that you have given us of David, a man of God, a man after your own heart. And Lord, 
we might have read this and at first been like Nathan, surprised that you would prohibit David from becoming the builder. And Lord, sometimes we get disappointed when we feel that what our plans are aren't your plans. And you oftentimes would want us to be reminded that we are not to be doing what we intend on doing, that we're going in a direction that we shouldn't be going, that we shouldn't be thinking. Lord, we know your desire for us is that we be filled with the Spirit, that we walk in the Spirit, that we walk by faith. And Lord, we do want to have you guiding our lives in the decisions that we do make. Help us, Lord, to be before you honestly, sincerely. Give us, O Lord, clarity of mind and heart. Help us to Look to others who can really be resources for us to help us in our decision-making sometimes. Help us to avoid being isolated. As your word says, he that separates himself seeks his own pleasure and is vehement against all sound wisdom. Lord, help us to not be so stubborn and rebellious that we have a mind of our own and we're not willing to share it with a brother or a sister who can also participate in our decision-making and help us, helping us Uh, as somewhat of an oracle to be able to give their advice or comments that could help us to be steered in the right direction. So, Lord, thank you once again for the lessons that we learn from the life of David. Help us to pay close attention to them and that we can follow him and the men of faith and women of faith of the past so that we can walk in the ways, Lord, like they did. Though oftentimes stumbling and fumbling, Lord, nevertheless, they were still classified as... They did this and they did that by faith. Help us, O God, to not uh, forsake what you have entrusted to us, giving us the spirit and giving us faith to believe. Help us, O Lord, to live for you and to glorify you in all our ways as we give you praise, worship, and thanksgiving in Jesus' precious and worthy name. Amen.